Graffiti, the music podcast that delivers the objective truth about the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever existed. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and if you're tuning in for the first time, ask yourself this. Do you think most modern discussions about music lack a certain fire and perspective? If the answer is yes, then welcome home. Join our Facebook group, Discography Soldiers of Sound. If you're a music fan, it's going to be just as crucial as this podcast, but in a whole different way. You get an irreverent daily dose of music history, coming attractions, insider scoops, and a direct connect if you want to dish out on how to make the show better, if such a thing is even possible. We're on Instagram and Twitter too, but the Facebook group's a community, so it's going to be more interactive and fun. My recommendation, if you like what you hear, is join the group. Then while you're at it, join up on the rest of the platforms too. And then please rate the podcast five stars, along with a beautifully worded review, especially if you're on Apple, Spotify, or Podchaser. That will help a lot. On whatever platform you do call home, you'll be privy to a never-ending flow of ongoing bonus content and encouraging words of wisdom on how to never, ever give up on your rock and roll dreams of maintaining a Lester Bangs-like perspective deep into adulthood. And if you're like me and enough is just never enough, then you just stepped in shit, my friends. Visit patreon.com slash and become one of our Patreon soldiers of sound. Our Patreon feed is the last word in deep dive music obsession. There are multiple tiers available at $5, 10 20 30 and $40 a month through which to gain entry to the psychedelically mind-melting music funhouse of Discography's Patreon. Find the most expensive one that's right for you so we can keep this thing owned and operated by us and for us. Because corporate magazines still suck. As you know, for the weekly Patreon episodes I'm assembling from this epic, sprawling interview, there's no real outtakes per se. Those all ended up in the garbage. What I've assembled here is only the off-topic stuff that we wandered into, which was actually very often. Simply by dint of the timeline itself and Bob's participation in the material, along with his friendships with everyone involved, 1994 was just as big a year for the Silver Jews as it was for Pavement. And so for this Thursday's Patreon episode, we've got a really, really special one for you guys. Although it's not the only topic we cover, there are eight minutes of Bob and I talking only about David Berman. Just to keep things moving in the main show, and also so as to not draw attention away from pavement proper, I cut it. But it's an incredible part of the interview, and if you're as much a Berman fan as I am, I honestly think it's just as essential as the main show. Uh, This is a bunch of Bob bonus clips coming at you weekly. All of it's essential, just too off topic to keep in the main show. All of it's going to be available only on the Lieutenant tier and above on our Patreon page. Okay, back to the free shit. Don't forget, the link to our legendary playlist is in the show notes and also on our website at discography.com. This is an invaluable resource if, like Bob and I, you just hate listening to shitty songs. Lastly but not leastly, a heartfelt Discography thanks goes out to Joe Cravino, who posts the show, Todd Zimmer, who does all the graphics and artwork, and my beautiful wife and son, Jen and Mason, without whose invaluable help and or morale-boosting energy, I would be 100% dead in the water. I can't thank you enough. I care too much about this show to be easy to deal with, and so also, I'm sorry. Okay, back to business. First things first, you guys need to know just how seriously I take this craziness. Discography is heavily researched, 
and the music is always reassessed with fresh ears. In fact, this time out, I reassessed everything Pavement ever did twice. We're not just covering albums, uh-uh. We do a searingly honest deep dive analysis of all EPs, singles, comp tracks, relevant solo work, singles, and bootlegs. Every release is slapped with an objectively accurate star rating between zero and five, which allows us all to come face to face with the true shape of an artist's overall arc. In this episode of Discography, we'll be turning our spray cans back on pavement. Career contemptuous voices of a Gen Xeration turned long game career maintenance experts after the range life whipping boys rolled their various cultural gutter balls one after the other. This is actually part three of an incredible six part series designed to play concurrent throughout the duration of their 2022 reunion tour. Truth be told, I just saw them on Friday at the Orpheum in LA and they were ridiculously, insanely, wonderfully excellent. Part three takes place from 1993 to 1994 And if you're a Pavement fan, you know exactly what that means. We are in the Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain era, guys and gals. But first, there were some growing pains to endure. Then we enter sort of an interesting little period because there's early second album attempts with Gary Young. I pulled two quotes that I thought addressed it really well. Scott said, then the whole thing with Gary went on and we didn't really get anything done. We tried to record a couple of songs of Gary's, these new songs. It wasn't like we were going to make a new record, but we just wanted to record these new songs. And then we went on tour and that's kind of when the whole Gary thing imploded. And then Steve said, at first Gary had a studio in his garage in real Stockton. And then he moved to this town called Linden and he got a new board. And he said it was going to be great, but it was a digital newer board. And I liked the old one, which was an old MCI, which is what he had when we did Slanted and Enchanted. But he said, this place is going to be great. We should work there. I don't know why, but I went out there. I lived in New York at the time, and I don't know if it was during Christmas or what, but I jammed with Gary and Scott and showed them the songs. I think I stayed at Gary's house. He had a crash pad waterbed thing. We did some stuff, then we went on tour after that, and that's when Gary quit. Really, we're looking at eight songs that were on the Crooked Rain repackaging. All My Friends, Soiled Little Philly, Range Life, Stop Breathing, LS2, Flux equals rad, bad version of war, and same way of saying. So I feel like they're bubbling under at this point. I mean, you can hear they're good songs. Uh, the songwriting's taking off to new levels, but the band's not clicking because one of the greatest rock drummers of all time just didn't fit in with the group. I don't see why I have to say anything then. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. basically, he just answered the question for me. Um, yeah, yeah. Spoken yeah. through the words of a far more authoritative person. They were just larval stage versions of, of a lot right. of what eventually ended up on Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain, which was also a record that was named after a David Berman cartoon. Wasn't it named after? Well, he said it was named after Purple Rain. Um, I think it was influenced by that, but I do remember the cartoon Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain. <laughs> that was. All right, so at this point, we got Steve coming in. So this was originally uh, Steve West was a friend of yours, right? Who went to the same high school. Since ninth grade. Okay. Since ninth grade. In August and September of 93 in New York, uh, you guys get to work on a batch of songs. Hands Off the Bayou, Heaven is a Truck, Eggshell, which is, I guess, the early 
the early iteration of that grounded kennel district pueblo and fucking righteous easily more distinctive than the aborted previous session you guys had with gary so and there's no doubting that for a second then there's a few other things that you have that are more outtakey that seem to be kind of tossed off remnants dark ages flood victim <clears throat> rug rat strings of nashville which you ultimately put lyrics to and is to me not a uh, tossed off thing that's one of your best songs i think this batch of tunes that you worked with with steve west it's interesting how many of these wound up on wowie zowie do you think that's because it was hard to get them fully worked out with steve because he was just brand new in the band that you wanted some new time with it i mean first of all i had nothing to do with the stage of pavement songwriting process i wasn't part of crooked rain crooked rain at all it was basically steven and steve west had become very good friends from living in Brooklyn. Steve West was very available to Steve Malkmus um, as an option to record and flesh out songs as a two-piece band. So wherever he was during the session you mentioned before, Uncomfortable at Gary's, this would have just been one of the rare times in in which two pavement members just spent a lot of time rehearsing and practicing together and creating songs. In the end, Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain was a very difficult album to make in terms of stops and starts in, in the recording process and, and working in different studios and with different people. It's the only album that's reminiscent of Terror Twilight in that way. Uh -huh. So the process of creating all the songs, many of which turned out to be wonderful songs, then the fact that Wowie Zowie, which was recorded at Easley, where Easley Studios in Memphis, where Silver Juice had recorded also, um, so those two albums really can be lumped into one thing, although the, they're completely different in every way. All of the songs on them, all 30 songs combined approximately here, were all created during the same two or three year post-Gary period. You know, from my perspective, um, which, again, my focus has always been the live show, even though Wowie Zowie would be the album that I participated on the most. Crooked Rain, you know, all the songs had to be played hundreds and hundreds of times live. So there's a certain consciousness of all of that. But, yeah, the fact that this song ended up on Wowie Zowie and this song ended up on Crooked Rain, and somewhat interestingly through entirely different means and, and entirely different sounds, um, although you could definitely tell it was all pavement with cases, it was just a bunch of songs and then having to organize them into two sessions. And whereas Wowie Zowie was far easier to make because we had toured all of Crooked Rain and continued to work on the songs that were maybe created for Crooked Rain that ended on Wowie Zowie during the entire incredibly long, arduous year of touring for Crooked Rain when pavement was far bigger commercially than we probably ever had been. One misconception of Wowie Zowie is that Wowie's I was made and recorded in such a manner to sort of get some attention off of our back. I don't think so at all. I just think, I mean, if anything, it was made less carefully and more flippantly, but it had nothing to do with commercialism. Um, nor did the ensuing success that Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain did. I would actually credit that to something more that was going on in the, in the music right. business and that journalists were looking for an answer to the void of Nirvana being gone. There's only one release before Crooked Rain. That's uh, in 94, you guys did a John Peel's <laughs> February 26th. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, just want to mention that super quick. Brink of the Clouds, Tartar Martyr, Pueblo Domain, and Sutcliffe Catering Song. Um, What's the third one? Pueblo Domain, which is, I think, the best song you did that day. Yeah. Brink of the Clouds was a pavement song that had been hanging around for a while that was the other very viable song. The other two songs were just time fillers for the sake that those sessions were meant to be like 12 to 15 minutes long. Well, still in all, I give that three stars. That's to me, three stars is as quote unquote bad as Pavement ever got. Yeah, two cool songs on it, so I'll give it three stars. Sweet. <laughs> but you can give it two. I mean, I mean, it's, no, no, no. It's no readily, I'm, I'm, I'm saying I can give it two. It's readily discardable. I don't think I would agree to do a hot seat thing with The Brink of the Clouds was a song that was actually pretty cool live, and it could have ended up on. Yeah, I still think this is a cool release. <laughs> Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain, totally. And I don't really like Strings of Nashville that you mentioned earlier. I mean, I, some people, I know a lot of people love it. It's just not my vibe. I, I love it. And I, I don't really like Nashville either. I, I, <laughs> Strings of Nashville, at the time I was going out with, she, I was very close with her, but um, she's my girlfriend. Strings of Nashville, when she would get depressed, she would just lock herself in her room and listen to that song on repeat. I remember that very, very well. And I think about that when I hear it. That poor girl. <laughs> yeah. So Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain, a very different kind of a sound. And I remember in my life, I had moved from San Francisco back to New Jersey and then from Jersey back to San Francisco. Crooked Rain came out and it was the soundtrack to very fraught period of my life. It's a much more accessible rock sound that actually has all these classic rock signifiers in it that in a whether intentionally ironic or non-ironic way the effect it has is to try to find a place within the the annals of music history for pavement to sit alongside with that's that's the effect that always had on me but of course the signifiers are not your run-of-the-mill classic rock thing. I mean, Billy Squire. The Stroke. Yeah, The Stroke. Uh, then you have, uh, what's uh, Brubeck? Dave Brubeck, Brubeck. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, you have like some real askew sort of tips of the hat. You know, in reading that endless and incredibly fascinating stereo gum overview, the place itself sounded like a really intriguing place to record an album in. It was really claustrophobic, real small, right in the center of the city, right? Oh, well, I've never been there. I have met Bryce Goggin. He's a great guy, and he put a lot of time and energy into it and really sort of made it happen. He was a sort of as vital to Crooked Rain as, you know, keep in mind, our, sort of our first outside engineer. Right. Um, um, he deserves a lot of credit for forcing the issue and making that all happen. But again, I was... The first time I ever heard any of that material in its recorded form was after it was completed. And I picked up Stephen and drove him from New York City back to Louisville to hang out in Louisville. And we listened to it on the way there, which is an 11 or 12 hour drive. We listened to it there. And he told me um, what I was going to do live on each of the songs and if i was cool with it and then i in turn suggested what i should do on several of the songs but to me it kind of sounded like pavement's sort of version of the sound aesthetic of the replacements album tim totally totally and i'm not sure really if that was going to work for pavement but you've got to keep in mind there's a certain consciousness in the body of work here by this band to even though you know steven's vocal style is going to be recognizable there was just you know definitely a conscious effort that both most bands make including several of the bands that we've mentioned during this 
program that they don't want to sound like what the previous thing sounded like, right. um, unless you're some sort of, unless you're, unless you don't have a choice and you don't have any control over that but pavement always had control over that. And, and that, what you just mentioned is the exact reason why when this thing came out that I recognized, uh, I thought when I first heard it, that you guys were going to be around forever, mainly because of this record. It was obvious that Steven had absolutely no interest in doing just like shooting at a bunch of fall inspired post-punk. Uh, so there's only about two or three of those ever in the history of the band anyways, but yeah, um, yeah, exactly. No, I think it was just, you know, it's part of his growth as a songwriter and you know, some of it's great, some of it's fine. But I think at the same time, one of the things that put a bad taste in his mouth is that he had to play um, so many of these songs so often to the point where by the time Wowie's Owie was made, he might have been completely burned out on it just about right. all the material on this record. We basically were asked to do too much after this record, and we did it in terms of touring and yeah. media and exposure. It was just the fact that we were young and healthy. It was biting off more than we could chew. And did everybody realize that at the time or no? I can only speak for myself. Yeah, yeah. I would say yes. And are you Regardless guys of what their reaction is. Are you guys a, a, a more of a weed-based band or a, or a drinking band? At that I mean, I mean, basically, I guess I can only speak for myself, and I just, I mean, watery domestic would be um, something that I always said because that's the kind of, I mean, I like a quality beer, but I was more known as drinking cheap, weak lager or. <laughs> beer you know somebody said hey bob we're going to the store do we need to get you something and i would just say yeah i'll take some beer and they'd be like what kind i would just say watery domestic beer. <laughs> so that's yours okay i didn't realize that was i mean yeah lord knows i would never want to do this but if i went through the arduous process of pinpointing pavement and silver jews lyrics that were I mean, when you spend so much time around somebody, certain little phrases that you think are funny are going to creep into your writing. I don't write lyrics. Those guys do. So, yeah, no, there's a lot of little things that I could put quotes around. <laughs> I mean, but yeah, so but that would be one of the more celebrated ones. I would say Canberra's preferred drink of choice would be wine, um, usually overpriced wine. And Steve West would be a bit of a whiskey man and then those other two guys have really never been big drinkers at all i've heard i've heard that malcolmus was was uh smoking prodigious amounts of weed at the time i i i, I mean i'm going just going to be completely honest with you i would say i will say this much um when i was a dinosaur fan i assumed that Jay Mascus had to have been one of the biggest potheads of all time early dinosaur stuff like before i would assume so dude, too yeah i don't think he even smoked weed so really um, wow okay yeah i mean i just you know i don't i don't really recall steven being an excessive pot smoker i mean no at the end of the day who gives a shit i'm just curious more than well, some people do because some people listen to music and they and they think oh man this band must have been so high let's smoke a joint listen to it that's cool by me I mean, if you know, if you like to take psilocybin and listen to Wowie Zowie, and that's the way you have a good time. 
go for it. You well, know, the, I like, mean, whatever your recipe is for enjoying the music, whatever mindset you need to get into, that's cool, man. Don't hurt yourself, you know. But even if you do, that's you know your own responsibility, you know. Well, on this show, obviously, you know, with each band, you got to look at the substances that play a more key role in determining the aesthetic output of the of the of the band. So, you know, Sly and the Family Stone, when PCP is the main force that's you know helping to guide some of the best music you've made it has to be examined because that's you know it's a substance that's going to play a part if you're on it it's going to play a part so just to know if there's a, any particular favored substance is just another window into the process that's all let's talk about well l- let me just start with two quotes here. So Mark Eibold said that Crooked Rain is the most consistent pavement album. And then I think the person who said it best as far as the descriptor for the, for Crooked Rain is Chris Lombardi from Matador. It, the quote from him, which I think is perfect, is it's an instantly playable record that really resonates with people who were born or brought up around a particular time. And that band represented a certain thing, a certain time, a certain feeling, a certain attitude, certainly a time change or a sea change in music or commercial music. And that was self-important in that way. And, you know, they were kind of the anti-heroes or the heroes. So Silence Kit, the whole thing starts off with a callback to Buddy Holly uh, with Every Day. And then there's Cowbell and Billy Squire callbacks and clean production, tempo slowdown toward the end. The whole thing is a very bold, very confident statement of intent. And it felt like the work of the same band that was different. I loved it. I remember first hearing it. I could not get enough of it. And Silence Kit was the clarion call for the whole thing. I thought it was just kind of corny. Um, really? Yeah, I mean, it was fun to play because, you know, obviously it's fun to play cowbell and <laughs> I like the lyrics. I mean, I just don't really think of music in any kind of comparative way when you're sort of in the middle of it. Well, then in that case, let me instruct you on the fact that this is an incredible song. <laughs> oh, thank you. I mean, you're welcome. Thank you. Yeah, I didn't have anything to do with writing it. I just played it a lot live and it was fun to play live because it was fun to have people enjoy completely average performance on Cowbell. That was just kind of the corniness of it to me. It didn't, it didn't really feel like pavement to me, but... Yeah. To me, Elevate Me Later is an anthem. That's more sort of typical pavement from previous eras, and it's just a cool song. I love that song, man. That that one verse, you sleep... Could have been on any pavement record, post-Perfect Sound Forever pavement record. That one uh, fucking fist thruster of a verse, you sleep with electric guitars, Range Rover, and with the Cinema Stars. I mean, that verse is so, so good. It's one of the best on the record. Yeah, yeah, this has always been my my absolute favorite. Also want to mention Steve West drumming on it because he plays it so perfectly and I could not imagine Gary Young on that track. I mean, I can't imagine Gary Young on any of these tracks and vice versa because they're just two completely different artists with a completely different ethic and totally different set of influences. Yeah, so that's obviously the most significant difference in the band is that Steve West is an incredibly hard worker and very, very determined and really puts the time in. His performance on the entire album's out of this world great, especially considering his unique situation of joining a band that already has a bit of reputation. Yeah, and he, he's going in a completely different way uh, entirely. He just from- had no choice. He had no choice. Yes. Yeah. 
He's, you're not going to go in there and imitate the other guy. No, but his style is, it really does fit with the band. It's like um, a heartbeat behind everyone else, which gives it a very important drag. That's cool, man. Agreed. And you can hear that also on Stop Breathing, which is very unique because I don't believe there's any other song that can qualify as Tennis Prague. It's a great song. Yeah. So a, now this is a song that also could have been on a lot of previous pavement records and any of the future ones. Definitely. It's yeah, just a yeah. it's just a classic pavement song. Brilliant live. And the, there's also a huge amount of tension in it. Yes. Really, really fun to play drums on. And that mid-song guitar breakdown is really one for the ages. Completely badass display of Malchus's skills, especially live versions, but the yeah. album version's great. So Jim Greer said that at the time, Malchus was smoking so much pot, he was always stoned. The only time I think Stephen perked up is when I started talking about tennis. He's very competitive, and I said something like, I'm probably better able to name the Wimbledon champion of 1979 than some obscure band. And he's like, who was? Is this a big thing with all you guys? Are you all into tennis? I was a really, really good tennis player when I was a teenager. I mean, I grew up with tennis. And then Steven's become very, very enthusiastic about tennis in the last few years. But it's always been a fan. And But then I think everybody else in the band at most has, have just been casual tennis fans. I mean, Steven, I think, you know, he could have been a really good youth tennis player. I grew up in Richmond, which was one of the greatest tennis towns in the country in the post-Arthur Ashe era. I mean, this town was so rabid about tennis. Stockton wasn't, so he had that major disadvantage. I'm sure he was one of about 20 kids in the entire city that were decent at tennis, so there was no comp. But he loved tennis from a young age. I mean, you know, we grew up in the you know, McEnroe, Borg, Connors, Guillermo Vias, Manuel Arantes, Tom Ocker... You know, Yvonne Gulagong, Tracy Austin, Andrea Yeager era. <laughs> I mean, there's it's just it's tennis is awesome. Did you read um, David Foster Wallace? Were you into him at all? I've only heard the name. He wrote Infinite Jest, but he was pretty big. Is, tennis it, is it fiction? It is, but he wrote a lot of nonfiction essays, which are uh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, excuse my ignorance. No, 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 no. Look, hey, this, this is why communication exists, so we can throw totemic cultural archetypes back and forth. <laughs> cool. Yeah. But Infinite Jest is its probably my favorite book I've ever read. He writes a lot about tennis because he almost went into the, the pro circuit. He, you know, wound up uh, certainly going the way he was intended to. But moving on to Cut Your Hair, let's talk about the, uh, the threat of becoming a massively huge band. Do you remember... That time, that feeling of being on the precipice, the excitement, or was it disappointing or is it exciting that you never got to like a Smashing Pumpkins level thing? Or do you think that- There's never that? any of that. Um, right. It'd be a better question for Eyebold, but it just seemed a little bit ridiculous to all of us that we were being celebrated in that manner completely unintentionally. It just seemed a little bit unreal and strange. Yeah, it was fun, but it was also like, you know, what are we doing here? You know, is a huge part of it. So, I mean, it's a great song. And so, it oh, no, the song itself is a really, really cool song. Um, but it didn't seem unrealistic at the time that you guys would actually ascend to that next level. Yeah, but we weren't thinking that way. That was just all by coincidence. I mean, sure. I think, I think that Stephen was just trying to make a cool pop song that, um, in the mid 90s, and then it just became 
a very celebrated song in a very similar fashion to all of our more celebrated songs from the same era. Kind of became like a summer babe of the mid nineties. But I can tell you even up to the present moment from about a week back, a week and a half ago, which is the last time I've heard this song, it's a catchy song and it's definitely a poppy song, but it's intense. And there's, not a single time when I hear this song, when the the verse with, uh, you know, attention and fame, a career, 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 where I don't get chills down my spine. Cool. It, it, it really is. It holds uh, all the power that it had to me back in 94. It still retains. I do disagree. Glad to hear it. I do disagree with you on Newark Wilder. I feel like it's the only unexceptional song on the record. I never really got with Newark Wilder. Yeah, I like it better than you do. That That is true. But I do, you know, for a band like Pavement, where there's a slack ethic involved, it actually, the idea of a song on a record that's not, that I don't like as much, it doesn't throw me off because it fits into the uh, the whole framework. If and it only you to know the slack ethic. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, unfair is a moment of uh, Nastanovich and the Sun, right? Live. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, you know, Stephen, basically, the only reason I would have ever sang or screamed on that song would be because we had to play a lot of live shows. And if Stephen gave us all on that song every night, then he yeah. wouldn't be able to sing a lot of the other songs that we were playing at the time. He would have done his vocal cords in. So, yeah, that's how a lot of things ended up on my plate. Did you ever suffer from laryngitis as a result of what was being asked from you? No, because I only had to do that on, like, three or four songs a night. I mean, I think there were times in which I did my ears a lot of damage and I had a sore throat, but I could still, I mean, you know, sometimes your voice is stronger than others. Do you have a hearing loss? Yeah, I mean, since before I ever was in a band. Oh, really? Like a diagnosed hearing loss? Never diagnosed, but I wouldn't want to go find out. But after this tour's over, you know, I'm pretty convinced that I won't have to play live music anymore that i'm gonna get a hearing aid <laughs> you know i mean it i can help you oh you can get me a cheap one you can give me a discount that'd be cool i i for seven years now i've been a hearing instrument specialist licensed in the state of california i will get you a free pair of hearing aids and i will program them for you and do everything i can oh fantastic of it'd course be, i have a hearing be, problem it'd be I my pleasure. That... all right so the next song uh first song on side b let me ask you a question pitchfork voted this the number one song of the 90s is it I think it could be. You could make the case that Gold Sounds is the catchiest song ever written. I think it's one of the top seven songs on the on this record. I think there's cool things about it. You know, I think that maybe its enduring success would be that it's a song that's definitely clearly a pavement song and unquestionably sounds like pavement, but it covers a lot of bases as a mid-90s alternative rock pop song yeah i think it's a cool song but i can understand more why rock critics like it than yeah, people, yeah. people that played in the band kind of corny to me in a way too it is oh it's totally corny i think that's one of the things that makes it because you know you guys are not known for your corniness for god's sake so when something like this huh. comes out and you have a guy who's known for his sense of irony singing 
believe in what you want to do. That's one of my favorite things about his lyric writing style is these little aphorisms and pumping up advice that he tosses out. It's like a breadcrumb trail. He's talking to himself, perhaps. Keep my address to myself because it's secret, because you're empty and I'm empty. All these little things, they kind of pop out of the woodwork and then go back down into it. I've always loved all those little pieces. And it really is kind of like, you know, very Dylan-esque in that way, because, you know, Dylan would always have stuff like that throughout it, it made sense that's the only time you're going to hear me compare Malcolm to dylan during this program but uh, range life is uh, is up next which i love and it's a vein of songwriting i've always loved of Malcolm's too which we continue with father to a sister of a thought yeah i mean it's funny that you would say that pavement is not a very corny band because what's not corny about this song right and i mean i, I think that range life in a lot of ways in terms of impact on popular culture that range life would have sold a lot more records than gold sounds for whatever reason but it kind of it earmarks pavement as willing to openly make fun of other bands that existed concurrently and i don't even really know what to think about that i don't know if that's a good idea or not well look i mean beefs in the rap world get a lot more intense than this this is kind of they get dangerous yeah yeah this is this is like, <laughs> or i don't really know how to define danger this is like silly you know it's uh just being smart ass is what's going on yeah. here that's all just smart ass and, yeah. and it should be considered nothing more. It was also commentary on not taking yourself too seriously is sort of the key thing to take away from it. The two bands were very easy targets. Then. But what people don't even uh, keep in mind with this whole thing is I, they have no function. He's implicating himself too. Moving forward, Heaven is a Truck, which to me is a sleeper. I never really think of this song when I think of the record. And every time, every time it's on, I like how it sounds. It's a cool sounding song. Yeah, it really is. And it kind of has. I think a there are a lot of bands that are from different genres of music that could cover the song and yeah. make it make it better than the original, which Definitely. is kind of a quality of a lot of pavement songs. I don't think anyone's going to improve on this, but this is actually sure. the only tune that was not recorded in that weird, cramped, claustrophobic studio that generated the rest of the tracks. It was recorded with Mark Venezia. Yeah, I never met him, but I understand he was very cool. You know, this kind of reminds me of Secret Knowledge of the Backroads, just in the way it has a sort of spacey, airy vibe to it. Kind of reminds me of Bruce Hornsby. Malcolm's doing a Bruce Hornsby Im imitation. Interesting. That's an interesting one. I don't hear that, but uh, next time I listen to it, I'm definitely going to kind of see if that aligns. Uh, Hit the Plane Down is definitely very much of a different uh, vibe song and the only Canberg song on the record. It's kind of reminding you that not only do we like early period fall, but we also like late period fall. <laughs> and then Fillmore Jive, which is a pavement parent favorite. Yeah, it's uh, just kind of an anthemic song. Yeah, about, and I, let me, I got it. I got sleeping. Maybe, maybe you don't know, but what the fuck are their throats filled with? Um, I can't remember. I've, I've played it recently. So when they pull out their plugs and they start up their drugs, their right. throats are filled with mud. 
Mud. Okay. So what Steve had said is that uh, the intro to Fillmore Jive was taken from Gary's studio. That was something where I was doing a frog's pastiche and we added that onto the beginning of that. Uh, Good night to the rock and roll era. Is that him? Do you think that's Steven baiting people or do, or you think those, those are just words that sound good? Yeah, those are just words that sound good. Yeah, yeah. So the flirtation with classic rock signifiers or at least those little clue-like breadcrumb trail things. I'm just curious from your good point slim of view. song. What's that? It's a good slint song. That is a great slint song. Yeah. With the classic rock stuff on Crooked Rain, do you think Steven was just having fun or was there a conscious attempt to kind of find you guys' place in the pantheon of classic rock? Do something different and having fun, yes. Yeah, Enterta- yeah. Entertaining himself so he could entertain a, a potentially larger audience. Got it. Five stars. I mean, super hard five stars. There's a you know a couple songs I don't like quite as much as the rest, but that's it's such a tiny quibble. Th- this album wound up being a rudder in my life. You know, it's just one of those things. Right place, right time, and it still holds up. It's still solid, brilliant, and still always sounds good. I give it a four stars because it's the pavement album that I'm least likely to listen to, although I'm very happy to play the one half of the songs that um, we still play live. I think it was an awkward, a very awkward pavement record to make in about 60 different ways, several of which I've documented on this program whoa wait a sec just allude to what you're talking about it was just a very strange era in pavement and i think that there's songs i just think everything about it is just um it's just not a pavement record that it it would be the one that i would recommend last even though you're going to hear um, a lot of great songs on it i just um, interesting man not what i expected to hear from you yeah and then you know but that just comes from experience of being around every aspect of it and touring it and just the experience as a whole so sure you're talking to somebody that had been in the band for several years that wasn't there for this recording and then having to swallow it and then having to deal with everything associated with it which is what I refer to what I mean, awkwardness. Right, right. And and so the reason why you asked me on the program was to get, you know, my opinions on the pavement discography, which one of the reasons why you perhaps done this with other artists talking about other artists is that they didn't live it. I'm right. saying that it was it was awkward for just the sake of one adjective to live that. And it was it was not comfortable. And so my four is based on all of the great songs on the record, of which there are several. I mean, a little bit more than half, perhaps. But I can't give it three because that's too harsh. But I certainly can't give it five, so I just give it four. And that's you can you can give it quarter stars too, just to let you know. But well, yeah, don't... but listen, that not going to do that. Yeah, yeah, no, that's okay. All right, so uh, I appreciate your honesty. Nineteen ninety four, the cut your hair single, which I bought at the time, I still own it. Cut your hair is obviously a great song. Let's talk about that B side, the camera cover an expansion of your R.E.M. tribute universe, which we talked about earlier, with a similar lyrical left turn toward the end. And it's, I've always loved Camera as an R.E.M. song, 
and I really love your cover. Uh, and it's a very desolate, very lonely sounding cover of the song. And then the song Stare is a really awesome end to the single. It's almost like the pop smarts of Cut Your Hair are stripped back on the B-side with camera. And then with Stare, it's really just kind of stripped to the nubs. Uh, so there's a progression to the single that's really interesting. And this thing, I, I definitely give five stars. It's a great single. I just don't remember much of it. So I'd give it four. I can't remember what stare is. Stare. I remember I remember it, but I, I just yeah. don't. It doesn't come into my head right now. We'll just use four stars as shorthand for a heaven. And then the camera thing is, is, a, is fine. 1994's Gold Sound single. So that is basically, there's three tracks except for Gold Sounds. Kneeling Bus, which is just kind of noise. Um, yeah, that's whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Then strings in Nashville, then exit theory, which is again, more noise. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a four. So I, I would give it five. Just because the B sides are just okay. Yeah. I think strings. And then, then it's uh, the, your opinion based on how you feel about gold sounds. No, no, it's not. My opinion is okay. based on strings in Nashville. Oh, you like strings in Nashville. Yeah. Yeah. I think strings in Nashville is I'm a, just indifferent to all these B sides. So it's just, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the and, fact that the B sides are half of the record that, this this a side on its own is a five but the b sides are just subpar pavement b sides to me i see strings in nashville as a major pavement work and i give this i mean i've heard other people say that you know yeah this one i give five stars uh, what, what are you all about on this one four okay uh all right so a few others that we're, we'll go through quickly before we uh get into 95 crooked rain crooked rain bonus seven inch had jam kids and haunt you down really great bonus seven inch really cool thing to own i give it a five um, it is a very obscure piece you had to buy a certain edition of the record but both songs are pretty cool and fun and it was just a super fun bonus to get with a record uh, record so i'll go to five based on what it was okay um, which is a collectible bonus seven inch suggests so a certain amount of self-importance to um, do something like that. I'm sure it was a decision that was kind of more made by Matador, sort of a clever business trick, yeah. um, which yeah, I'm kind of indifferent to that. But, you know, good idea if you're running a record label and, you know, your market. But for what it was, it's cool. And I'll give it a five. Those songs are cool in their own way. I like short, nickel. Yeah. I don't, I don't feel as strong. I give it a three, but for what it is, like the fact that you guys threw a bonus seven inch in there, it was super cool. And then that same year, Gold Sounds, uh, Australia, New Zealand tour EP, you guys did a vocal on 5-4 vocal, and, oh, yeah. which yeah. is cool, but ultimately I think it works better as an instrumental. Yeah, 4. 1994 again, uh, an early version of Blackout, which you guys hadn't quite found it yet, but it's it's cool that that's available. 94 as well, Hey Drag City compilation, you guys did Nail Clinic. I'll give that one three stars. I mean, that's just one of those songs that was lying around from way back when that would fit on, yeah. Three. I mean, yeah, it's just... all right. So now we're in phase two, at least the way that I see it. I'm sure some people would have, you know, different concepts of what what that phase switch would be. I remember the moment when phase two began for me. So phase two, I'm naming Slack to Torpor, uh, 95 to 99. But before we actually move forward into the latter half of their career, uh, I actually realized upon playing this episode and the prior episode back about 16,000 times during the editing process that we didn't actually cover the songs on Watery Domestic. 
So this little sub episode is a is a, is a way to correct that. Here's a watery domestic mini episode, mainly because I care, so you don't have to. Bob, I am you're very gracious for doing this. I think you and I are incredibly proficient at getting off topic. And what happened here is one of the greatest releases of all time, and certainly in pavement storied history, uh, and one of the great EPs of all time got completely overlooked musically. I don't even think we mentioned any of the songs by name and skipped right past it, which is not acceptable for an offering like Watery Domestic. I mean, I think that's the point of your show, too, is to be fairly completist, I believe. It would seem that way. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, And, and then getting off topic, you know, again, I'm the guest, you're the host. That's not really my fault. No, I, I'm taking full responsibility. Don't, okay. Okay. I'm not pointing the finger, my friend. Uh, I, I love getting off topic with you. It reminds me of the beginning of uh, American Werewolf in London. We got off the path. And to get right back on it. <laughs> I mean, I'm famous for um, being decent at trivia, but relentlessly poor at getting the pink pie. <laughs> you could tell me like a quote from a movie i saw last night i mean unless it's jaws or something else you know it's you know it's funny the I hangover just, I jaws or the hangover i know the next line jaws came out when i was three years old it came out when you were eight my son is three and it's playing in 3d uh, down the street for me so i took him a few gotta days. go yeah he lasted about 20 30 minutes but at least we got to the scene where he's sitting Rory Scheider's sitting at the breakfast table with his son and he's oh, in, yeah. doing those hand movements oh yeah that was pretty cute so beautiful he, he obviously didn't stay long enough to see the um Scheider throwing the cut bait in the water and then backpedaling through the boat and saying we're gonna need a bigger boat did you see any any Quint did you see any Robert Shaw because yes. Robert Shaw's intro is about 45 minutes 40 minutes in when he scratches the chalkboard yes with the chalkboard we saw we were gone almost right after that we were kind of gone around pippet pippet uh, okay yeah floating skull in the hole in the boat would have been probably too much for most children yeah that always struck me as kind of cheesy as a kid which is weird but it, yeah here we as are as a kid as a, i mean obviously now if you look at it now sure it seems Bob, you gotta love this we we got yeah. so off topic we didn't get to watery domestic now we're doing a sub show where all we're doing is getting off topic i truly love talking with you it's like <laughs> We can never actually get to the. I just don't want to talk about watery domestic. <laughs> All right, so okay. watery, oh, go ahead. Let's talk about the stroke of genius of, and I still have my copy from back in the day of having a spin magazine quote that's printed in Greek as a sticker on the cover. Every time I look at that, I laugh. Huh? I never saw that edition myself. It's very fun. It's just a sticker slapped on the on the cellophane. What I love about this EP, first of all, obviously the recording debut of yourself and Mark Eibold. First time I'd ever been to Stockton in my life. There's a wonderful place called Worley's where they were famous for their beef sandwiches and their cheap mm. beer and they had a lovely shuffleboard table. And then Gary's bar was in a strip mall and it was called The Office. And it was one of those, you know, classic bars with about eight to 12 total regulars who were total day drinkers. And Gary had a really terrible convertible of some sort in very poor condition. And he would pull around the back of the office and he would sort of peel out when he peeled in sort of maneuver. And um, so they knew to get his first vodka and grapefruit ready. And when he walked in 1950s style, the bartender would be sliding his rocks glass down the bar. <laughs> and um, Gary would always leave his car keys in his car in the hopes that somebody would steal it so he could collect insurance money. And no one ever did. That's funny. 
<laughs> in, in the ignition, the car keys were in the ignition of a convertible. Nobody ever stole his car. It was very dangerous. I used to jog, and I would I would have daydreams that people would hit me so I could collect insurance. I, I kind of get it. It's kind of disturbing, but yeah. I told you the story about the there's a like a there was a budding heavy metal band a couple of decades ago that really needed money. Um, so their I think it was their singer volunteered to go into some wealthy neighborhood in Nashville and try his best to get bitten by a dog. And he succeeded. And, uh, and the people who owned the dog were so worried about the dog getting put down that they settled right there. And the band collected $80,000. I have, I have mixed feelings about that. I think it was highly immoral. Um, Isn't that like Nick Solomon? Nick Solomon of the Bevis Frond, I believe he got hit by a bus in England and that allowed him to buy his recording equipment and kickstarted his his career as Bevis Frond. Yeah, but that, did that did he intentionally get hit by the bus? No, he's a, he's a lot less. Okay, then he's morally sound. He <laughs> exactly. wasn't wandering around a wealthy neighborhood trying to get bit by a dog. <laughs> I mean, bad karma. Nothing ever came of their band. Uh, all right, so this EP recorded in April 1992 is loaded super deep with secrets and feints. And for fans, you know what I was talking about before about AJ Wepperman and fans of the type that will sift through garbage for clues and signifiers. This EP is loaded with that stuff. You got uh, Don't Expect, Don't Expect, She's So Lackadaisical, Should Have Been a West Coast Bride. All these little lyrical phrases, I've got style miles and miles, so much style that it's wasted. Anyway, let's let's start from the top. Uh, I think the main vibe here is that it's kind of an extension of Slanted in terms of the, the feel of it, except the songwriting has taken a really big step forward in sophistication. I would say it's almost Bacharach like some of the changes like Texas never whispers, you know, after that overdriven, I'm guessing it's guitar in the intro. Is that what that is? Yes. So right after that overdriven guitar intro, the melodic inventiveness is mind blowing. Um, it's a confident songwriter. He just had finished his first international tour was highly revered and being praised and being called by so many prominent rock critics and other opinionists. Um, he was just being hailed as a genius. I'm not really sure. He seemed like the same guy to me, so maybe he handled it quite well. But obviously, there, he was uh, acting with supreme confidence. Um, it was still at a point when things seemed very easy for him. As your confidence goes up, that's parallel with the volume of your vocals in the mix. You can sort of hear that on Watery Domestic, every song. You know, he had a lot of swagger at this point. Mark and I, you know, had always enjoyed being in the band. I'd been in since 90 and I've been in since 91. But, you know, the, the touring that we did in 92... Um, after Santa and Shannon came out, that was like a lifelong dream for all five of us in the band, including Gary. Maybe most so Gary, because Gary obviously had served the most time pursuing that dream of being, you know, a fairly successful touring rock band. You know, and we worked hard, but it was absolutely glorious in a lot of ways. We had a lot of fun and watery domestic, which just all came together after, you know, freshening up from the demands of that tour. And Malcolm was ready to go right back in there and felt super great about himself. And I think you can hear it not only on all four songs on the EP, but also on Greenlander, which was made during the same session. And I feel like there was one other song. Greenlander is definitely as it's the same yardstick of quality as this entire EP. Yeah, I think it would have fit on there nicely. It was a tough edit. You know what struck me? I just listened to it again 
about an hour before we did this program. And the phrase that kept popping up for me is jam band minimalism. In other words, the, these spaces make themselves available during the songs. Like for example, at the end of Texas Never Whispers, and it feels like it's gonna build to this massive jam. And it just is so unexcitable in a confident way where he's Stevens just laying back in the pocket, just kind of picking a few notes here and there, but it's completely on point, even though it's hysterically mellow. I mean, you know what I'm talking about, right? He's just picking like yes. a notes where he could be all over the place, just showering notes, but no. that's confidence. It's also good taste. Yeah. <laughs> Front words, one of the best pavement songs ever. It's an anthem, whether or not you want to accede to that. You guys played this on Friday when I saw you. You know, the thing that strikes me on this song is this is Eyebold song because the hook is that slightly, just ever so slightly off tune bass. To me, that gives the tension of the song and it's amazing. And the way that it's mixed is, you know, Mark is mixed over Malcolm's guitar, even in that like well-contained crazy section, you still have, you know, Mark towering over Steven in volume. And I think that's the tension of the song. And I love it. It's interesting that you said that the, you thought the bass was off tune because I never would have noticed that. I mean that in a way that creates positive tension. So. Oh, it, okay. So you're, just, okay. So you're talking about the musical feel as opposed to the actual tuning of the instrument. You haven't mentioned your, that you're ever a guitar tech or something. I have a project with the ex co-host of the show called the mental regarded i like the band name thanks man we uh the only project we have been working on is the last 10 years we're trying we're putting together a triple album rock opera about elves called elf harmony we're two albums into it that's uh remarkably obscure <laughs> that's precisely what it is okay do you agree that frontwards is an anthem um, i don't usually refer to songs with that word. I guess we have a few songs that get labeled that. Summer Babe would certainly be in that category. Totally. Do you like the cover by Los Campesinos? I have heard it a couple of times. I think just about every band that's ever covered a pavement song does an outstanding job. Very tasteful, and you can really feel their um, appreciation of the song, which is deeply complimentary. Frontwards, if you're going to use the word anthem, which understands it's like sort of a glowing and positive adjective. Frontwards is a song that we have used quite a few times. The first song is on the set list live. So yes, I guess that it would be anthemic. Oh, it's, a, yeah. it's a show starter. Yeah. Um, grounded is in the same category, of course. It was particularly fun to play it in Paris, France, where they would always some kind of groan during that part. <laughs> um, Paris is still in the swore if we fail. So that was always fun because <laughs> it was obviously very tongue-in-cheek. It's Stephen with a certain amount of swagger on this whole EP. In the first cycle, and this again, this the end of the Gary era. And it feels like a wrapping up. It feels like, you know... It, to me, it just feels like the culmination of a series of young people, rock and roll dr dreams that came true and the confidence, the confidence without being arrogant that comes out of that four, five year process of taking steps towards achieving. Again, this is a dream that had no financial basis. And I would have been happy to do it as a roadie myself or a tour manager or whatever. Being in the band actually was a bit unnerving for me. Since we were young kids, we'd see things like bands, tour schedules, whether it was in fanzines or on flyers or 
whatever to be like can you imagine how awesome it would be to play like 55 places in 61 days and like mm. you know sleep on people's floors and couches and stuff and stay in cheap motel rooms and like go to you know weird restaurants all over the country you know and, and you know to be able to do that all, not only all around the country but also the world after San enchanted watery domestic is the creation that came after this period of like sort of monumental and unbelievable joy for not only a bunch of people in their early to mid twenties, but also very much so a 40 year old guy had been in almost 30 bands, most of whom had similar aspirations. So, you know, not only been a lot to Gary, Gary was starting to believe very much that these kids, these two guys that stumbled into a studio four years before that he was happy to charge whatever he charged 20 bucks an hour to record completely wildly out of left field that these two kids and then, you know, their other buddies were going to take him places that he never went. And I think he was still in disbelief when Watery Domestic was made that, that he'd done all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when Watery Domestic was made, we're sort of on the verge of embarking on a completely wild journey that none of us had ever dreamed of. And that was to play in Japan, Australia, and New Zealand, which was similarly mind-blowing. So it was just this glorious period in pavement where things happened really, really fast. And everybody was just like, obviously in no way shape or form feeling like a rock star but we were definitely feeling pretty good about ourselves and feeling like a rock star to me must be a horrible feeling yeah it's got to be intense and and unless you have a very very specific kind of personality and a tremendous ego that protects you i would imagine you're feeling insecure at all times i always felt kind of secure the anxiety was intense just because there were expectations well, you guys are meeting and exceeding the expectations. I mean, this is not just like, hey, we're doing it, but we're doing it so well that, I mean, when I look at Watery Domestic, there's not a single wasted moment. There's not a single moment that doesn't work. Moving on to side B with uh, Feed Him to the Lions, Linden. Uh, what's, what's Linden? Linden is a small rural town just outside of Stockton, where Gary has lived for a long, long, long time with his wife, Cherry. And specifically, that song is about their um, very small public high school's football team, which is pretty just kind of nondescript high school football team in the middle of nowhere in California. It's kind of a sports theme song. It's kind of a corny football theme song in a way. It's fucking brilliant. It's, a, it, it's it, just a fun song and we still play it um it's actually going over quite well in fact we play every song on this record except for texas never whispers which i think we could play actually i don't, I don't think we've actually we actually ever played it in the steve west era so um whereas he's obviously played dozens of pre-steve west songs steve has he's learned all of them steve west has i'm sure he knows how to play it but yeah yeah tell me what you think the, well, the Beach Boys is my favorite band of all time. And, and this, you know, the, the aspect of the Beach Boys that I find the least appealing, uh, which is that stupidly innocuous uh, high school America USA thing. Be true. This is like a punk redux of Be True to Your School. Be True to Your School. Is that a Beach Boys song? Yeah, yeah. Be true to your school now. Just uh, like you early yeah. guy. I mean, I bought that sounds because somebody told me that it was really awesome. And it's in my record collection. I've listened to it probably 
10 to 15 times and I can see why people love it. And I think it's, you know, kind of cool too. So, um, you know, I don't understand it's again, like one of those bands, sadly ignorant on the subject. I, I can shed much, much light on the beach boys. And I feel like the subversive elements of the beach boys in contrast to what they represent to most people in America who don't look under the covers, most fascinating part of them. They're really endlessly fascinating. If you put the time in and smile to me, is the ultimate artistic creation. That's one of their famous albums, right? Smile. Well, it was never released. And it, oh, okay. the what ifs are absolutely endless. It doesn't actually exist in a finished form. It was released uh, as a box set called the Smile Sessions. But I, I have. Is that because they were like, was that because they were flaking out on drugs or? He was doing a bunch of acid, but it was mainly. Just the one guy where the other guy's sober and the other guy was like Sid Barretting all the time. He was Sid Barretting, but along with Sid, didn't have the constitution for that. Brian Wilson was an incredibly emotionally sensitive kid who was beaten by his dad and had an incredible gift and pulled out of the production race right at the cusp of when he was about to change music completely. So the quantum physics. That's sad. Oh, it's, well, it's sad. triumphant, but it's just a sad story. I didn't know that. It is. Yeah, it's the. Doesn't he have a brother in the band? He had two brothers in the band and a cousin. So he was not only ensconced in this Icarus-like pursuit of making the greatest statement musically that was possible, but he also felt an endless responsibility toward his family to replicate the formula that had got them fame in the first place. That's very tough. He was torn to pieces, yeah. So I also want to mention before we move on to Shoot the Singer that the downed live wire shredding, guitar shredding in between the verses is... And I just did that Italian exploding asshole movement with my hand. Oh, I know that one. You know um, that one? <laughs> sure. Yeah. So yeah, she- no, Steven's just really confident here, and he's just a great guitar player. So, I mean, yeah, it's a pleasure to be in the band with him. <laughs> All right. I'm not going to let you rest on generic platitudes, my friend. Shoot the singer one sick verse. Let's, let's talk. Oh, I forgot the one sick verse thing. What's the story there? Uh, I, I feel like I don't this is- know. I mean, I, I mean, if I had listened to the song with you right now, I could probably pick out the verse that he thinks is sick. And it also <laughs> might be sick, cool, and it might be bad, sick, or good, sick. Look, the whole thing on the fade of don't expect, don't expect. Look, this is not, you know, the deepest thing I've ever heard in my life. But for, you know, this was reverberant to my friends and I as well. I mean, this, you know, this was a song that we would come back to all the time. What the fuck does someone took in these pants mean? Why would something that meaningless open a song when don't expect is it's really just about as profound as someone in their early 20s uh, something that somebody can hear in a song it's just a great tune i don't know what the uh, intent behind it was there's still some jam band minimalism at the end of the tune the way that it ends is incredible it seems to be attempting to squeeze out a guitar solo and again all it is are these incredibly relaxed super confident handful of notes that he peels off before just uttering don't expect on the fade this is part of the confidence and the feeling good about yourself aspect that i've mentioned previously this is the first time in which pavement was comfortable and confident enough to sound kind of groovy and that would be the case really on all four songs um linden being the least shoot the singer obviously and frontwards could have been 
seven inches. They could, or they could have been singles from albums. And whatever that means, that's just obviously some sort of business strategy. It's just a very, very good EP. Um, Shoot the Singer in particular, Stephen has a tendency to, in lyrics, without actually speaking too specifically about the person, mention people that he likes yeah hunter kennedy would be the subject of the of the one verse he's the he's the editor of a great little literary arts magazine called minus times he's south carolina based and uh he was somebody that was always at our shows and just a very interesting unique character um that we got to know very well just like um when yardley is mentioned in fight this generation she's this really sweet um woman we also knew from the days back in charlottesville he would just like kind of throw names that he liked people that he liked people that he sort of remembered you know kind of fondly Berman did the same thing quite famously often the most precise thing would have been when it, on random rules when he actually referred to Steven who was in the band as um, you know and called him Stevie um, so, and probably a lot of songwriters do that it's just that I'm not really intensely aware of too many other songwriters other than that pair and a handful of other of my favorite bands that I'm a completist of and I guess that's why I was qualified to talk about pavement on these on this program you can definitely easily make a case that watery domestic is your best all-around release it is i believe the most consistent one it's kind of easy it's a lot easier to have a consistent ep but there's it's completely and utterly perfect uh, i give it a hard five yeah no it's a five and again um i love eps the clash black market clash on tenants i mean it, this is our second ep you know because perfect sound forever that's uh, i mean actually the, the first seven inches the first two seven inches were eps also this is our first 12 inch ep Black Market um, Clash had uh, Bank Robber, Armageddon Time, right? Yeah. No, oh, my God. And the first, you know, Cheat Cheat, A Reason to Be Fair, Cheat Cheat or Don't Get Anywhere, Cheat Cheat If You Can't Win. Stuff, man. And unlike you, I don't try to sing like the lead sing. I like when you try to do your vocal passes and actually try to sing. I, I just actually say the lyrics. Um, <laughs> but now, yeah, it's a five. It's a five. It's a, it's a five, and like, you know, thank God we didn't spoil it by putting, like most payment albums, at least one or two bad songs on well, it. You told me that that was an, an intentional thing, but yet this is truly an unsullied, uh, compact, economically presented masterpiece. And it's a. T yeah, and just about every baseball player that's played 100 games in their career has a game where they go four for four for some crazy reason. Yeah. I, mean, I could be wrong about that. Maybe you have to play like 400 games, but um, yeah, no, in this case, it's, you know, it's kind of four for four. Yeah. Well, this is just something to be proud of uh it's this is now definitively uh, the episode has ended part three uh we want to thank you for for joining us next week is going to be the wowie zowie era and bob and i differ greatly on our thoughts on this record so you want to hang in there and, and learn who thinks what and why they think it so join us next sunday for pavement part four the wowie zowie era as always i'm i'm right he's wrong Ha, 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 ha.